Well, it's lovely to um, have the second half now of our encounter with this extraordinary little letter of Jude, this little polished jewel tucked away towards the end of the New Testament. So I'll start by reading the passage, and then I'll pray. So Jude, verses 14 to 25. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, By building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Well, let me pray for all of us, including me, as we come before this passage together now. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray by your Spirit that you would give us what we do not have, that you would teach us what we do not know, and that you would make us what we are not yet. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's kick off with a very quick recap from last week. Jude, who grew up with Jesus as his brother, but now serves him as his risen and ascended Lord, has heard disturbing news about a group of false teachers. These men have wormed their way into a church congregation and are leading people astray through their dodgy views and their immoral conduct. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but in practice... They've replaced Christ on the throne of their lives with themselves. And they love to preach about God's grace, but they twist that good news into a license to live exactly how they please and to indulge all their desires, all their passions. And Jude sees that in the false teacher's attack on the moral implications of the gospel, the gospel itself is at stake. Because the gospel at heart is about saving sinners and not about promoting sin. So Jude writes this letter, and he calls on the congregation to contend for the true faith, that unchangeable faith that's been handed down to us by Christ and his apostles. 
And this isn't just an exhortation for the church leaders. It's a call to every faithful believer in that congregation, in that church family, to stand up for Christ and for his gospel. So how are they, how are we to contend? What armour are we to wear? What weapons are we to fight with? Well, Jude gives us the answer in our passage tonight, and it may surprise you. But before we can get to that, we need to finish off tackling this big middle section of the letter, which stretches all the way from verse 5 right through to verse 19. And this is the block where Jude makes his case against the false teachers, where he, as it were, unmasks them, shows everyone the ugly reality that lies behind this impressive facade. For those who got hooked on the TV series Line of Duty a few months back, these verses are the equivalent of those long dramatic interrogation scenes where a dossier of damning evidence is carefully laid out and where piece by piece the crimes are revealed and the true culprits are exposed. Only for Jude, the the damning evidence comes from the Bible itself. Jude opens up the scriptures and he points to example after example of God's sure judgment upon the ungodly. So he's saying to the congregation, remember what happened then, remember to, about those who grumbled in the wilderness and to the men of Sodom and to Cain and to Balaam and to Korah, remember them, and then recognize that the false teachers in your church have put themselves under exactly the same judgment. In fact, because God's character doesn't change, these men are already condemned. For them, as Jude puts it in verse 13, blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So as we dive back into the letter tonight for part two, you'll see that Jude's got two more little rounds of remember and recognize with which to conclude his case. So verses 14 and 15, Jude says, on top of all these Old Testament proofs, he says, remember Enoch's prophecy. He writes, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. That's to say about these false teachers. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, earlier, back in verse 4, Jude's already made a point of emphasizing that the condemnation of the false teachers was written about long ago. And so to underline that claim further, he reaches all the way back to this figure of Enoch, the seventh generation after Adam. You might remember that Enoch was rather special. We're told in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, not that Enoch lived and died, but that he walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. And as you might imagine, all kinds of legends subsequently developed about Enoch, this mysterious patriarch who was apparently taken up into heaven. In fact, in the first century BC, a whole book was written about him, the first book of Enoch, which describes all kinds of visionary and mystical experiences. And for those interested, the text survives now only in an Ethiopic translation of a Greek translation of an Aramaic original. And it's from this book, big book, that Jude now quotes from 1 Enoch chapter 1, verse 9, in fact. Now, the content of that verse, as you can see from the passage, is nothing especially unusual. Actually, it's just a helpful summary of various elements from the Old Testament, especially from Deuteronomy chapter 33 and Isaiah chapter 66. So why then does Jude 
choose to quote from this obscure and, to be honest, rather eccentric book, and indeed to quote from it as authoritative, rather than just trotting out those verses from Deuteronomy or from Isaiah. Because the decision to do so has in fact landed Jude's letter in a huge amount of hot water ever since. It was the main reason why some of the church fathers um, weren't even sure about whether it should be included in the New Testament. Well, for what it's worth, here's my theory. I think the first book of Enoch was a favorite of the false teachers. You see, we know these men claimed authority for their doctrines on the basis of their access to special visions and special dreams, where mystical truths were revealed to them beyond the experience of normal Christians in the pews. And one Enoch is cut from very much that kind of cloth. It's the story of a special man who finds out special things through special visions. We're just like the super spiritual Enoch, these false teachers would have said. And if you don't believe us, you can read all about that sort of thing here. So I think Jude's strategy is to use the false teacher's favorite book against them. Jude's saying, well, if you're going to appeal to this text, let me remind you what the great Enoch had to say about ungodly sinners. You see, that's the other particular virtue of that verse that Jude quotes. He began his letter by characterizing the false teachers first and foremost as ungodly, and so is under God's judgment. And here is a verse that speaks of God's judgment on the ungodly, not once, but four times. It literally reads, See the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly works they've committed in an ungodly way and of all the defiant words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Even your special book regards you as ungodly and as condemned, Jude wants to say. And that little reference to defiant words is then the springboard for Jude's denunciation of the false teacher's words. There in verse 16, he says, these men are grumblers. That's the same word used in the Old Testament for the Israelites who grumbled and murmured against God in the wilderness. These men are grumblers and they're fault finders. They speak contemptuously of God and his word and his commandments. They're not servants of Christ, but rather slaves to their own passions and desires. They're full of boastful language and puffed up preaching and arrogant speech. Jude reminds us here that what we believe and how we live are connected. Wrong doctrine leads to bad fruit. Lies in our minds leads to ugliness in our lives. And Jude's final little comment here is telling. He says, these men flatter others for their own advantage also be put, they show favoritism for the sake of gain. Now remember, there was no diocese stipend for clergy in the first century. If you wanted to make your living as a church leader, you relied upon the direct financial giving of the congregation. I think that's the background to what Jude's describing here. These men set themselves up as teachers in the church, but instead of preaching scriptural morality faithfully, however unpopular or offensive or difficult that might be, they instead preach whatever the wealthy in the church, upon whose generosity they depended, wanted to hear. They're arrogant towards God, but sycophantic towards men. They reject God's word and instead teach with an eye to the influential and to the rich 
hoping that this doctrine of moral laxity will increase their appeal and swell their bank balance. So a little nudge for everyone here this evening. Whenever anyone stands up at the front here at All Saints and preaches, please make sure they're preaching faithfully. Make sure they're preaching what scripture says and not what the congregation might want to hear or what the outside world might want them to say. Because no sermon, if I can put it this way, is ever spiritually neutral. It will either be faithful to God's word and so lead us further towards God, or it will be unfaithful to God's word and so lead us further from him. Well, one last quick remember and recognize to round off this section. Jude bids his readers remember the words of Christ and his apostles. Jesus had warned against the coming of false teachers in Matthew chapter 7. Paul gives a very similar warning in Acts chapter 20. And Jude may have especially had in mind here the apostles who had founded this particular church congregation because part of their original teaching to this little baby church family would have been precisely this kind of warning. Jude saying, your founders warned you about particularly these kind of men. False teachers in the church, whether in first century Palestine or in 21st century England, are no surprise to God. As long as there has been a church, there have been, as Jude puts it, scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. As long as, long as there have been sheep that need protecting, there have been wolves ready to attack them. So beware the siren call that says, if only I join this church or this denomination, it'll be perfect. The perfect church does not exist on earth. It will only exist in heaven. But beware, too, the opposite tendency to minimize or ignore or downplay false teaching entirely, as if a few little tweaks to the basis of what we believe or how we're called to live doesn't matter that much, really. Or, indeed, is a wonderful opportunity to model diversity and good disagreement and humble openness to change. No. Look again at the binary contrast Jude makes time and time again throughout his letter. There are two sorts of people in this congregation, and they're going in two entirely different directions, with two entirely different destinations. They are as distinct as light from darkness. There are the dear friends, he keeps saying, you dear friends, that's literally you beloved, you beloved ones, those loved by God. And there are repeatedly these men, these people, the false teachers. Jude always leaves the false teachers unnamed because, in a sense, their names are already given by the Old Testament rebels who prefigure them and predict them, Cain and Balaam and Korah and the rest. They bear the names and they bear the imprint, you might say, and the destiny of past sinners. Whereas the dear friends, the beloved, are so named because they bear the imprint of the love of God. They are formed, receive their identity, not from man's lies, but from God's love. They are the recipients of God's undeserved mercy through Christ, whereas the others are the recipients of God's deserved judgment through Christ. Well, you may be relieved to hear that verse 19 marks the end of Jude's case for the prosecution. It is undoubtedly one of the most sustained and ferocious invectives in the whole Bible. Jude makes it crystal clear that rejecting God's authority and embracing ungodliness will certainly lead to eternal doom. And so at last, 
having exposed these men, having shown his readers why they are to contend for the true faith, he can now explain to them how they are to contend. So here is now the beating heart of Jude's letter, the core of his appeal to the church then and to the church now. Jude gives us two ways to contend, and I think they're both very surprising. First way to contend, verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Jude says, you contend for the faith by living a godly life. You contend against others' ungodliness by cultivating your godliness. Isn't that striking? Jude doesn't say, contend for the faith by attacking the enemy, and here are the weapons to deploy. He doesn't even say here, contend for the faith by preaching against their false doctrines. There is this deep darkness in a section of the congregation of this church, and Jude says, you focus on shining all the brighter. There's this horrible ugliness in a section of the congregation, and Jude says, you focus on becoming all the more beautiful. Contending for the faith is primarily here self-directed cultivation and not other-directed confrontation. Because Jude knows that the moment he's exposed these false teachers, and the biggest danger for the congregation is no longer they'll look up to them, but they'll look down on them. The most likely temptation will not now be unrighteousness, but self-righteousness. I thank you, God, I'm not like these terrible false teachers over there. God, uh, Jude knows, God knows as well, there's such a thing as ungodly contending, contending that doesn't honour God. We've probably all experienced people who have absolutely orthodox doctrine, perfect doctrinal soundness, but they ended up falling in love with their own sense of rightness and superiority. Their contending ends up having more to do with shoring up their own ego than with serving Christ. So they attack false teaching by writing angry blog posts and pursuing vicious diatribes and by shouting that bit louder than their opponents. And so they may win the argument, but they don't win anyone over to their cause. Like, like the roundheads in 1066 and all that, they are right but repulsive. No, we are to contend by growing in godliness. We are to contend, as Jude puts it, by keeping ourselves in God's love. That's to say, having known and experienced God's mercy in Christ, now remain and abide in God's love. Keep walking in the way of God's commandments. Live each day consciously dwelling in God's love. Remember every day that God's love for you is always present reality as well as past fact. Keep yourselves in God's love. That's the main verb. That's the imperative in the sentence. And then Jude gives three participles that flesh out what that looks like in practice. Building, praying, waiting. So building. Whereas the false teacher's ungodliness divides and tears down the church, you build it up by growing in the knowledge and love of God. Just as a, a tree's best way of withstanding storms is to have deep roots securing it into the ground. So your best way of withstanding the storms of false doctrine is to put down deeper roots into the true faith. So you build on the secure foundation of the unchanging faith and not on the shifting sands of false teaching. 
And as you do that, the, the church fellowship will grow more and more and will embody the beauty of lives lived in the gospel. So building, praying, whereas the false teachers claim to be guided by the Spirit, whereas in fact they're devoid of him, so you pray in the Spirit. Demonstrate daily prayerful dependence on the Lord. So rather than spending ages reading or nattering about the latest contentious issues in the Church of England, pray about them. When we're confronted by an issue in our church, how high up the list does prayer come on our to-do list? Let's make sure with any troubling issue, we're always speaking to God before we're speaking to others. So building, praying, waiting. Whereas the false teachers await only condemnation because they trust in themselves for salvation. So you await with confidence eternal life in Christ Jesus because you trust in his mercy. It's the mercy of Christ and not the strength of our faith that will ultimately bring us home which, in which we can rest secure. So first way to contend for the faith, cultivate our godliness. Second way to contend, verses 22 and 23, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Earlier this week, Philip and I fired up Netflix for a romantic evening film, and we, well, largely me, thought the best option was a film called The Meg, which is an action movie starring Jason Statham, in which our muscular hero contends against a megalodon, a giant prehistoric killer shark. And I thought it was as fabulous. You can ask Philip whether she agreed after the service, but without giving away too many spoilers uh, for those who'd like to enjoy it themselves. The real highlight is the climactic battle where Statham abandons the high-tech ships and the fancy weapons and decides to physically wrestle with the shark and to punch it a bit. And I mention this because if I had written the epistle of Jude, having exposed and denounced these terrible false teachers, I would probably have encouraged the faithful members of the congregation to do unto the false teachers what Mr. Statham did unto the giant prehistoric killer shark. But Jude says, show the mercy. How do I contend for the faith? Jude says you contend for the faith not least by showing mercy to the very ones who have imperiled it. Isn't that striking? Jude says, you've known in your life the transformative mercy of Christ towards you. Now show that same transformative mercy to these others. Don't respond in anger, respond in love. And Jude divides this advice into three, which correspond to the three levels of involvement that various members of the congregation may have had with the false teachers. Three increasing degrees of contact with the infectious virus, as it were, of their sin. So show God's mercy by helping the doubters. Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. So these are the people in the church family who've been a bit unsettled by the false teachers. They're, they're wavering. They're wobbling in their views. They're in danger of being drawn in a bit further. After all, they say, what these men have preached sounds so plausible, so attractive. Perhaps they're right in the way they interpret the Bible. Perhaps they're right that Christ liberates us from all this stuffy, old-fashioned, culturally unacceptable morality. And Jude says, be merciful to these doubters. Don't pull them aside and just 
tell them off for their theological error. Remind them of the mercy and the grace of Christ so that they become more aware of the beauty of his gospel and so grow in their desire to please the Lord Jesus and to live under his lordship. The medicine for doubters is the merciful gospel. So helping the doubters, rescuing the tempted. Jude says, save others by snatching them from the fire. So some in the congregation have evidently come under greater influence from these false teachers. Perhaps they've embraced this new theology. Perhaps they've started to get caught up in sinful patterns of behavior. Jude says they're playing with fire. Not just fire in the present that burns through families and relationships, but the eternal fire of future judgment too. The images of people teetering on the precipice, but there's still time to snatch them back from the edge before they fall. Jude says rescue them. Warn them in a spirit of brotherly love. Tell them afresh the gospel of salvation. Urge them to come back to the Lord and there to find repentance and forgiveness. There is no more powerful witness to the beauty of the gospel than in the way we love those in our church family when they mess up. Helping the doubters, rescuing the tempted. Finally, loving the ringleaders. Show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. So we're into the inner circle now. Jude uses the imagery of contamination. These people are so deep into error and into sin that close contact is likely to infect others. So Jude's not somehow naive to the dangers here. Show caution, he says. Show fear. And yet still show mercy. Even the worst sinner can be cleansed through the gospel of grace. We know that's the case because it's true for each one of us. Show them mercy. If they refuse to repent, if they continue in their ungodly infectiousness, practice social distancing. But even then, don't stop praying for them, love them, desire their salvation. Don't give up hope that they may turn to Christ and be forgiven and reconciled and restored. Well, once again, you've been very patient as I've gone on far too long. Uh, We've reached perhaps now the most famous bit of Jude's letter, this beautiful closing doxology in verses 24 and 25. And I'm going to make that our prayer as we bring things to a close now. Because it's a doxology that brings together all we've learned from this letter. Jude wants us to be encouraged by the transformative mercy of Jesus Christ that redeemed us in the past, that keeps and guards us in the present, and that will on the last day bring us home to rejoice in God's presence forever. Jude wants us to know the transformative mercy of Jesus Christ and to embody it more and more each day so that our lives shine with the beauty of godliness and not least by showing mercy to others. And Jude wants us to open our eyes anew to the glory and the majesty and the power and the authority of our God and Saviour, who is sovereign in all things, who judges justly, who calls his people from darkness to light, who strengthens his people to contend for the gospel, and before whom all the wounds and battles and sadnesses of this life will one day melt away in worship and adoration and joy and praise. So why don't I lead us in these final verses of Jude as a prayer. Shall we pray? So to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you 
before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Well, for our final song this evening, we direct our eyes to that mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, his love and his blood as the basis of our security and our hope. So we're going to stand to sing.